Welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Annika Jackson, a community volunteer, philanthropist, marketing and communication professional, podcast host, and graduate level professor at USC. We reached out to Annika to discuss journalism, PR, and everything in between. Annika, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on. So it sounds like you've been working quite a bit in the fields of PR and marketing. Can you tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. Currently, I am VP of PR and operations at Full Capacity Marketing. We focus on workforce development, education, entrepreneurs, and nonprofits, and everything from the digital marketing, branding, strategy, to the public relations and social media. I'm also a professor at USC Annenberg. I teach this semester, I'm teaching PR and branding because they're very interrelated. And then Later, I'll also sometimes teach on the digital media side, uh, digital content and things like that. And then I also have a podcast. I've been working in marketing for over two decades. I've done a little bit of everything from experiential marketing, launch marketing for publications, a lot of, a lot of events and integrating uh, sponsors and advertisers and partners into events and experiences for the consumer side. I've done a lot of that. It all started back on a dance floor. I loved dance music. And I will say everything I learned was because I was a club promoter and through raves and grew up in the club scene. And so I kind of started there and evolved into this career that's, you know, not quite corporate, but a little more. Uh, but I think a lot of that foundation is still what I use today in everything that I do. All right, that's fascinating. So I heard it said that marketing is when you say good things about yourself and PR is when you get other people to say good things about you. <laughs> yes. First of all, is that true? And second of all, how do you get other people to say good things about you? That is such a great way to phrase it. Yes, marketing is when you're talking about yourself. Now, there is some of that in PR. Nowadays, you know, we, we say like the old days, everything was siloed. Even at large companies, sometimes it's still like that. You have a PR team, you have the marketing team, you have the sales team, the advertising. But you have to know now what everybody is doing because people are looking for your digital footprint to match who you are in person, right? So they want to see your website, your social media, and what you say in an interview be the same. Now, the interview part is that earned media is what we call it, which is getting other people to say good things about you. That third-party validation so for instance, me being on your podcast is validation that I might know what I'm talking about when it comes to marketing or PR, right? Um, but and if I have you on my podcast, it would be the same thing because I, I love the topics that you get into in the other web and how you disseminate the misinformation and all of the things that we go through. So PR and marketing have to work hand in hand these days. And it's a tricky market because on one hand, a lot of journalists are being replaced by AI right now, right? right? And a lot of publications won't write about if you have a product, uh, any kind of household product or good, if you don't have affiliate links and you don't have five-star reviews on Amazon, they're not even going to look at you. And so then you have to think on the marketing side, how do I get those things taken care of? Because then as a publicist, I can go and say, yes, we have these because really Unfortunately, it's all commoditized. A lot of times to get into bigger publications, if you don't, you have to have those links because that's how they're going to make money because they've lost advertising revenue in other areas. So it's all about how do they make more money? And it's less about 
what are people really interested in and engaged in and what's going to be fresh, right? So you have to kind of find that happy medium. And that's where podcasting comes in. Podcasting is the new media that everybody's looking at to create their brand authority and their thought leadership. Um, I do a lot with looking at smaller, kind of a, the uh, like a baby. You crawl usually before you walk, before you run. So let's start with smaller publications, build your brand up that way in publications that are still your target audience will start giving you brand authority. And then I have something else to show those bigger publications as well to say, yes, these all of these people think that you are who you say you are. They're writing about you. So that the Forbes and Fortunes and Inks and whatever else should also write about you. Right. So there's several things here I want to dig into, but I'm <laughs> going to go in order. The first one is, if a publication looks for you to already have affiliate links or ways to for them to make money from this content, are they really a publication at that point? Are they even trying to create the original content or are they just seeking to get something prepackaged for you? Repeat what you gave them verbatim, essentially your marketing materials, mm-hmm. post it, make money. I mean, I haven't seen much original content come with affiliate links. It's usually just copy pasting something from the website of the uh, yeah. of the creator of the product. I mean, honestly, a lot of that, you're 100% correct. A lot of that is the li- what we call listicles, the gift guide, right? They'll take that, but you, they have to have the affiliate link and they just take your information. And sometimes you'll find they'll they'll sift through and they won't take every product uh, because they might not think the product is worthy, even if it has the affiliate link. But you're 100% correct. It is a lot to do with that. The other part, though, is if I'm pitching a client who is a thought leader in, say, school safety, and they have a product that they think will help create more school safety, their product still has to have an affiliate link, even if the article is mostly about the person behind it and their mission. So that's where it gets a little discrepancy, where... They might be really interested in what this person has to say, but I still have to build up that story and they still have to have this affiliate link. So it makes our job more intricate. And it also makes it a little bit harder because entrepreneurs are very busy. They don't have time to do everything that you know that you have to do in today's world to make sure that you are being seen and you are visible and that you're taking these steps and actions so that I can get you in these publications. The other thing we see a lot is the pay to play on broadcast segments right? So looking at maybe back to school segments, or again, the gift guide segments, a lot of those that you see on broadcast TV, you have to pay to be on them. It's not true editorial coverage, as you were saying. I think I'm playing an older game because we're avoiding all of that stuff. Yeah. And in our platform, we actually filter out listicles and anything with an affiliate link Mm. (laughs) because we don't (laughs) think that is even worth publishing or distributing at least. So I don't think we've ever pitched somebody to write an article about us and given them a link along with it. Yeah. So that in itself is a little bizarre to me. Now, let's talk a little bit about pay to play now that you've touched upon it, because Mm -hmm. that's a part I really also don't understand. We've gotten some offers before Mm -hmm. of pay us this much and we'll publish an article about you. And I just send them to spam. Even if they came from a real newspaper, it just seems like this can't be real. Real newspapers wouldn't do that, would they? Oh, 100% they do. 100% they do. When you look at lists of the top 50 dentists or doctors or lawyers, a lot of those are pay to play. A lot of the time to get listed, you have to pay a fee that they say then it goes towards you get an ad and you get this. And so they couch it as kind of a sponsorship. And a lot of that you'll see advertise, you know, you'll see something that 
designates that it's an advertisement. Um, look at BuzzFeed, for instance. BuzzFeed News division completely shut down. They laid everybody off, but they kept the other side, which was the paid content side. Mm-hmm. So, and and most of the other information they pull, if you look at the BuzzFeed list, it's a lot of things that they pull from Reddit or from other news sources. So it's not true news. It's just quick sound bites so people can read an article, but it's not really true content. It's not storytelling. It's not news that we need in our lives. It's just that entertainment fluff. So, and and this is a problem that I see as well, because a lot of people who might not know the nuances of PR, they'll say, well, I got in this publication. I said, yeah, but you paid to be in it. It's not truly an article about you. You can put this website up, but this is not really a New York publication. It's a New York publication that exists on one little blog website so that you can say you're published in a New York publication, but everything on there is paid content. So it is a really big issue and it's something that we have to combat constantly. And there are publicists out there who do exactly what you're saying. They say, oh, we're going to, we're number one. We're going to get you listed here, here, here. Well, if you're really working with somebody, that's not the way that it works to get the real story out. Uh, It takes a lot more time. It's not a, it's like, SEO and like a lot of other things in marketing and in this whole stratosphere of communications, it's not a short game. Sometimes we can get really quick hits because you have the right story at the right time, but mostly it's going to be a lot more of developing those relationships, building your profile slowly, slowly. And if you want to take the other route, you can, but it's not to me, true media. And it actually is a disgrace in our industry. Right. As somebody who is working on trying to improve the entire ecosystem, right. <laughs> I want to take the other route out of the system, right? I want to basically make it so that people can't even find all the pay-to-play stuff because I don't understand why it exists. But it's it's a pretty big problem. I've been offered at some point to be on a Forbes council of some sort. Yeah. And their literal pitch was, you'll be able to tell people you are getting published on Forbes.com. Yeah. I'm saying, yeah, but Nobody's even editing the stuff I'm publishing there. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So leaving that aside, you mentioned another really interesting idea of first getting published in smaller media and then sort of going up the chain gradually. I encountered this idea actually in Ryan Holiday's book. Hmm. Um, Trust me, I'm lying, I think is the name, <laughs> right? Where he talked about if you want to plant a story in the news, you start by a local blogger and then you kind of allow the bigger guys to double source by citing the local blogger and you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how much do you see that happening in the market? Is that the method that can repeatably work for smaller startups that don't have the budget to run real PR campaigns? Yeah, I, well, and it's not that it's not a real PR campaign because usually we do it. We also send out press releases. We'll also be pitching the bigger publications. And, and also a lot of times people don't, necessarily want to be front and center of their brand, but you have to today. People want to know who is behind the brand. Do they hold the same values that I hold before they want to buy? Because they're buying you, right? They're buying you and your values and what you're bringing to the table and what you're saying you're going to solve for them. Your brand could be one of 20 million brands out there that do the ex- almost the exact same thing. So the difference is you. Um, and so I have seen success with this. For One example is I had a group of women doctors, uh, black women doctors, ER, during the pandemic. They had also created a platform that helped volunteers uh, who had student loan debt match with startups and nonprofits who didn't have big budgets so that the volunteers would do the project. They were professionals. They would do professional work. 
And then they would have some of their student loan debt paid off by the company instead of getting paid for it. So it was a win-win. They got something experienced. They got something on their resume. And the nonprofit also got work that they really needed but couldn't afford to go to a big agency and pay tens of thousands of dollars for. This platform is called Shared Harvest. And they pivoted it because they saw during the pandemic, oh my gosh, people who we need to come to the hospital are not coming in because they don't have a doctor. They might be scared. They you know, don't have insurance. So how do we change our system to help meet the need? And so we actually did uh, COVID testing and counseling in neighborhoods in Queens, in Atlanta, throughout Los Angeles, Oakland, in places that really needed it and kind of created a block party atmosphere. So I was able to sell the story of how the women took their experience in the ER and not seeing the communities of color and other people that they needed to see to get treatment and they met them where they're at. So I was able to get that into some local publications, some national, international blogs that was seen by a bigger publication. That bigger publication say, hey, I want to interview them. Okay. So then we got a different interview. So it wasn't the same exact story, but it was based on that original pitch, right? Right. They eventually ended up being on an Amazon TV show called Regular Heroes. And it all started with a few little blogs because I needed to get them comfortable because they they didn't think they had a PR story. And it's like, you absolutely have a story here that needs to be shared. And now they are regular on NPR and all of these other channels. But it started with a blog in Girl Talk HQ. So I guess my question on that as an engineer, I'm immediately thinking, what is the structure here? Mm. Can you tell in advance who reads whom or which big journalist reads a particular small blogger so that you know where to plant the local story for it to propagate upward? Not necessarily, unless you're following everybody on, I mean, X, right? Or Twitter used to be the one that all the journalists are. And there are still a lot of journalists on it, but they're leaving and they're trying to figure out how to use threads and everything else out there or LinkedIn. And, you know, um, unless you're following them very closely and seeing what they're commenting on and retweeting, or I don't even know what the new vernacular is, but unless they're doing that, you won't really know who's actually going to see it. But that small journalist often will move to become, you know, to something bigger in the old days. Now, of course, with AI, this is the new unknown, even it's not, it's not really new, but the, but now everybody's talking about it, right? In the last year, um, people are really getting worried. And, and even at the university, we have to teach students about AI. We have to make sure they're using it as a resource, but not to do all of their work, not to write pitches for their press. Because that's another thing we're seeing. Journalists know if AI has written your pitches to them. They know if it's written an article. So they will block publicists if they see that come through. How um, do they know? Um, because it's not... Well, first of all, AI is not completely updated. It's a couple, still a couple years old, and it doesn't have the humanization. Though you can use it to maybe tweak a sentence or two or help you ideate, but to write something completely, often there'll be repeats, maybe the same phrase, right? The same concept repeated in just slightly different ways in six times. That's actually an example I saw when I was reading the news today. Somebody was talking about that for a pitch they got. Yeah, um, it, looks, it looks like somebody using it incorrectly. Because yeah, yeah. You know, uh, at least uh, with proper prompt engineering, you can get it to write sentences that, or even entire sections that I don't think you would be able to tell it's AI and not the human that wrote it. Now, it might include nonsense, right? Because 
GPT-4 hallucinates a lot, so does BARD, <laughs> so does every other system like this, because they've been trained on the entire internet, and most of the internet is junk, right? Right. And so it learned nonsense. But at least style-wise, I think if, if the style is messed up, then somebody was using it wrong. Uh, yeah, I think there has to be a lot of training for people on how to use it properly and how to really utilize it as a tool for good and right. not just to be lazy, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the irony is I get interviewed a lot on that topic specifically of like, how do you teach people to use AI for good instead of doing book reports without reading the book, right? Yeah, well, I need you to come on my podcast <laughs> and maybe come speak to my class. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but yeah, so I'm really, really curious about that topic because to me, it seems like the news ecosystem includes some real news. It mm. includes some legitimate stories planted by PR people that were essentially almost ready-made for somebody to publish without doing any proper journalistic work, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of pre-packaged for publishing as if the journalist wrote it. Then it includes some pay-to-play. Then it includes some BuzzFeed-level clickbait. And then it now seems to also include AI-generated BuzzFeed-level clickbait. So how much of the news is news? Yeah. Um... Very little. What I can say is news, and it's interesting. I think it's more localized now. So that's you have to get to that really localized level to get true news because local journalists care about what's going on in their communities and they want to write about real things. They don't want to write about the fluff. So an instance would be um, one of my clients who has a school safety device was installing it in a school in Illinois. It was a small school, but I said, let me send out a press release. And also let me pitch the local journalists. Nobody was really interested except we got did get a hit from the local NPR station. They put an article on their website and it was truly an article that they wrote. They interviewed the superintendent. They didn't quote my client or anything. And then they also put it on the radio, on their local affiliate only. It didn't go national. But that was an example where that actually was a true media hit because they took what I sent but then they disregarded it. They did their own research. They looked at the website. They looked at the social media. They called the school district to verify. They interviewed them and quoted them, right? So we were mentioned, which is still fantastic. It's still a win to me, right? But you're right. On the other side, a lot of publications, especially online publications now, and it is a tool that I use because it's there, but a lot of them say, okay, here's a list of questions. Just send back your answers to the questions. Um, and the local, I mean, the public, I don't think is as aware and they're not as concerned about that. It's more when you get into the minutia and when you get to our level and you're looking at what really is news that we care more deeply. And that could, that's also part of the problem, right? That you're talking about. And, and I think I, I've had worse examples than the one you just mentioned. I've had cases where I show up to an interview and all the questions I get are questions that were a part of the PR pitch that my agent sent to that outlet mm -hmm. in the same order. And so I guess that's great for some founders who just memorized their answers to these things, right? And they don't want to have a real interview. But I'm almost disgusted as I'm answering these and that, can't you give me something I didn't expect? Test me a little bit. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and well, and to be fair... I think for a lot of people, podcasting is like what they do on top of everything else. Right. So um, for me, I, I will take question, the questions that I get and I'll have them up, but I want to have an organic conversation and I want to see what rabbit holes we go down. And if the guest 
isn't really good at that kind of discourse, then I'll more refer to the questions to make sure, okay, let's let's cover these points because this is what you know how to talk about. And you're not really going to give me anything personal, but I don't want to just talk about, you know, I want to get into the personal, like I want to get into the story of why, why did you create this brand and what are you really doing with it? And what prompted you to switch careers and what advice do you have for people? And what are the tips for SEO or for podcasting or for video, you know, or whatever the techniques are that they're using. So, yeah. And you just mentioned brand and I guess 10 minutes ago or so you said there's a really close connection between PR and branding. So I want us to dig into that a little bit. Why is that the case and how does branding affect PR? Well, simply put, you can be a brand or you can be a product. You can be a brand or you can be a commodity, right? And a lot of times people come to a publicist and they say, okay, I'm ready for PR. I want to get my story out there. I have a website. I have a logo. I have my social media set up. But they don't even know what their real message is. They don't have honed in on their ideal customer persona, right? So I always have to take it back to, okay, but what is your brand? What is your purpose? What is your real mission, vision? What are your values? What is What difference are you making to your audience? If you can't talk about that, it's going to be really hard for me to pitch you. If we don't see the brand across all of the ecosystem of marketing, if you don't have cohesiveness between what people will see on social media, what they'll read about in a blog post, see on your website... If you don't make it easy after an interview, if people go to your website for them to click through to get the information that they need, you know, then it's completely useless and PR is not going to work, just quite frankly. So, so that, so I, I always start back with, do you have a brand? And I will do PR for people if I see that, okay, you're still developing, you're a very new company, you know who your audience is, you don't quite have full brand, but we can brand you as the founder and then we can get there. And so sometimes I will work and then, and then I'll have to go back to them and say, I took you through this whole thing. I recommended all these strategies. You only wanted PR. So that's what we're doing. But here's why I can't get you further because you don't, you didn't do these other things. You didn't do the work to really develop your brand essence and make sure that when you are responding to comments on social media, that you are doing it in your brand voice. It's not just that you have somebody on your team who's responding maybe inappropriately or with answers that are not making people feel the safety or the comfort or the excitement or whatever you're trying to evoke with your brand. So it's really about what's the emotional response. That's going to help me on the PR side too. And it's going to help me get journalists excited. It's going to help me get the consumers excited when the journalists write about them. So you mentioned the founder as the brand or the connection between the founder. And it seems like there's quite a bit of violence in the market here. You have Apple and Steve Jobs were essentially inseparable from each other. Then you have WhatsApp and Jan Kum, for example, where I think Jan Kum gave one interview in his life and it was after he already sold WhatsApp, right? And it was to a close friend. That's the only person he agreed to interview. So what is the right place on this continuum for a founder? Do you have to have the charisma of Steve Jobs to be able to build a brand these days? You don't have to, but if you don't, you have to have a really strong brand narrative from the very beginning. And what we see now is that even to get employed, you have to have a personal brand, right? That helps with everything. Uh, Me getting hired as a professor, it really helped that I had my own podcast and that I have connections and that I have this experience in the market that I can bring and show my students. Um, The job I do, everything I do is interconnected, right? So 
being on a podcast or having a podcast of my own. It helps build my brand. It helps people have more confidence in my ability, even if it's not directly related to my work as a publicist. It still gives me that thought authority. And so building up your personal brand, we're seeing is just even more and more important um, every day. So the personal brand can act as a substitute to a company brand that hasn't been worked through in some sense. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Not always, but yes, if it's done, if it's done well, it's done right. Because really, why did you start your company? Probably because you had something that you were trying to solve for yourself, for your family or friends. And so you think about how it did that, right? And what your values are that you're putting into the brand. So really the brand is an extension of you. Now, it's something you revisit. I always call it a living document. Your audience might change. Your brand purpose might change. You might not be involved in the company as much. And so hopefully, if you're going to become a big company, that there is separation. Because if there's not, that's when it it can also get into trouble when you get to the the big leagues and uh, you're too closely associated with your company. And some VCs really like to extract the founder from the company and replace them with somebody else. So I'm thinking... (laughs) On the one hand, it sounds like if the founder makes himself or herself a part of the brand, that makes it less likely. Um, Mm. On the other hand, maybe the company would benefit from the founder being extracted. And now if those brands are intertwined, that lowers the chances of the company to succeed on its own. Yeah. And I think we see that more with, with smaller businesses and nonprofits, particularly, that somebody started a nonprofit, they've been the executive director and the founder forever. And it's really hard for them to let go. And it's also really hard for other people to recognize authority from anybody else but that original person. And it's the same thing with a lot of small businesses, agencies. If you are a founder and you've had all, built up all these relationships over a long time, have somebody else come in there and then be the point of contact is not going to be an easy transition. So as someone who works with nonprofits, which you mentioned, and with regular C-corporations, I presume, or other types of companies. Mm-hmm. We chose to be something in the middle, a public benefit corporation. I'm curious how many others make that choice, or do you see the two drifting together or going their own separate ways and doing completely different things? Mm-hmm. How do people add purpose to a company other than to change the legal structure because a C-corporation doesn't really allow for purpose? Yeah, that's a really tough question. And because honestly, a lot of the tech companies that I work with or the health or the other companies that I work with do have a purpose, even if they're a C-Corp. Um, they, they're not a public benefit, but they have infused it into their mission. So um, for instance, there's a small company called Kitty Credit. And the founder also is one of the co-founders of Black Men Talk Tech. He's the non-technical founder. And Kitty Credit started as an app to teach families about financial literacy. And it's a pay, paid app. Um, They have a freemium model as well. The parents or the caregivers or the teachers put in chores or activities. The kids do them. And if they do them in a timely fashion, they do them well, then they get points. And it kind of mirrors a FICO score. Then they can get rewards. And then there's credit lessons that can help them increase that score. And now they've moved on to curriculum that they've partnered with Boys and Girls Clubs, Girl Scouts, different organizations to have a paid curriculum. They now have a debit card coming out for the team market. So they've expanded their offerings and they're very much a for-profit company but who received financial credit information going through the US school system very very few people it's something that is 
definitely a social good, even though it's a for-profit company and they're not a public benefit per se, right? Well, the question would always happen in a company like that. What happens if the original founding team loses control of the company? Yeah. Right, because maybe they have the mission in mind, and to them it is more important than, than shareholder value, right. which in itself they might get sued by their investors or something. But at some point, they might just no longer have the votes on the board yeah. Yeah. to still yeah. maintain the benefit or the purpose. So I don't know. Uh, it's always concerning to me when I, I see companies lose their ways, and it happens a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Um, the scope creep, right? Well, scope, scope creep is one way to put it, but but yes, it's uh, kind of the evolution from the reason why you created it to the reason why it exists now and why does a corporation exist? Money. To maximize shareholder value. Yeah. That's what the law says, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so outside PR, you mentioned social media marketing, you mentioned other forms of marketing. Is there some logical framework that ties it all together about the message you put out into the world, how you envision yourself, how you brand yourself, how you communicate that message, how you get others to talk about you. Yeah. What's the structure here? I, I always go back to peso, you know, the peso model. It makes it really simple. So paid, earned, shared, and owned media. So you take one piece of content, whichever one you start in, take that one piece of content and then figure out how you're disseminating the same message across all of those channels. So... Does your advertising match? Because we also know that in the sales cycle, depending on the market, like with our workforce development education clients, it can take eight to 12 touch points typically for uh, an adult learner or somebody to decide, okay, I want to learn more about the certification program, or I want to go to school and get my high school equivalency, or you know, any number of programs that a, a community college or a workforce development board might offer to that student. So we want to make sure that those touch points are show the same messaging between the advertising, what people are going to see on social media, what they're going to see on the website. And so a lot of times that's where we'll start with, we'll really dig into psychographics and demographics, come up with the key personas. What is the commonality between these personas that can create one framework message for the campaign? And then we'll use different images and we'll A-B test and all of that. But yeah, like if I go to the other side, if I start with, I got a hit for a client um, they have an article or they're in a podcast, then I will make sure that they have the correct captions, that they have the logos to put on their website with the correct links, that they have images correctly sized for social media. And then they can decide if they want to put if they want to boost it or put some advertising or make it part of that that kind of campaign. But that's a way to really integrate the cycle to make sure that everything is cohesive and matches. Because if somebody sees that and then they go to your website and it's hard to navigate and they don't see the same message, then they lose, they lose trust in you immediately. Right. Um, so you mentioned podcasts and another semi-related question I have is to what extent is working with them different than working with older forms of media? Mm. Is it a completely different selection criteria from a podcaster, podcaster's perspective? Or is it just another type of radio anchor in a sense? <laughs> oh, I think it is quickly becoming um, not a new media, even though that's a lot of people still say it's new media. Podcasting is 20 years old. It's not that new, right? But now everybody's discovered it. Um, and the reality is that I think the last statistic I saw was about 38% of public of traditional publicists are now using podcasting as part of their strategy. But if you think about brands, 
even Trader Joe's has their own podcast. Now, I don't know who's going to want love. I love Trader Joe's, but I don't know who loves it enough that they want to listen to that podcast. But it's another way to build up their SEO value, right? Even if nobody, if they don't get a lot of listeners, it's still going to start appearing and put their name in more places. And then somebody might click and say, oh, I do want to know what this, what's this episode about? What are they, you know? So it is something that is becoming more and more prevalent. I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out how to navigate the world of podcasting. And I get, I'm sure like you, so many pitches and they're often, they're very beautiful, right? And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I luckily now I feel like I'm getting good pitches with people who are like ideal, but sometimes I get ones and I'm like, if it's somebody pitching themselves individually, I have to go, go back and really think about why you're a right fit for my podcast. What would you talk about that would add value? Listen to some episodes, perhaps. I do think it's becoming one of those things where people are blanket pitching more. And what we're seeing from the journalists that still exist, whether it's a podcast host or a traditional journalist, they still want to know, they want that pitch that actually resonates with their audience and what they write about. and isn't going to be something far in the off field. But I, I wonder with at least some podcasters that are pretty big and famous, is there even any pitching involved in their guest selection, for example, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious that to get on, you know, getting interviewed by some big news anchor, you need to somehow pitch them formally. But to get on Joe Rogan, you probably just need to go and get your ass kicked in jujitsu, right? I'm not sure there's pitching involved, is there? Uh, a lot of the bigger podcasts are pay to play, talking about that. And honestly, I've done a couple um, of those for clients and the results weren't great. It wasn't worth the money. The interviews were so short, it just really wasn't valuable. And so I always say, don't, don't worry about the big podcasts. Don't worry about those ones with the big name where you're going to have to pay hundred, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not more to sponsor, to even get on the podcast, to be interviewed, unless you are some other big name that they want on the show, or you're going to do some wacky stunt. But uh, instead, figure out who your ideal audience is, where they live. And if one person listens to that episode, even if it's a small audience episode, and they tell somebody else and they buy your product or service, they interact with you. That's worth it. And that actually is a cheaper cost to acquire a new client or a new customer, right? Because that's that's also something we have to look at. Yeah. Well, so comparing PR to other forms of media where you just, okay, I can advertise on Facebook and get people for two bucks, or here I just <laughs> spent, I don't know, 5,000 a month and I ended up having this many people, is it better or worse? That's almost the transactional way of viewing this. I'm thinking, is there a more interpersonal way that seems to thrive in podcasting where everybody seems to interview their own friends for the most part, Hmm. at least among the famous podcasts? Mm -hmm. Is it true or is it not true anymore? And now it's just another form of media where it's just as transactional. I... Hmm. I think it's somewhere in between. I think it's somewhere in between because I think at our level, like we didn't know each other before we decided to do this. Uh, and so that's a beautiful thing, right? It's not just us interviewing because we know somebody. But I think, yeah, for a lot of the bigger podcasts, it is um, even Smartless, right? That podcast now, you see people coming on. It's part of the press junket for actors and celebrities when the new film is being released. So it's become more part of this stream of, okay, we have to be on this podcast, this podcast, this podcast, along with being interviewed on E-Entertainment and 
blah, 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 and whatever. So for that level, it's not as uh, organic and natural. But I think the level I'm at still 200 something episodes into my podcast, it's still as organic. It's still very natural. It's still like I get so excited because I get to meet really amazing people who have so much value to add, who my audience probably doesn't know yet. I want to go back to the PR part of the discussion just a little bit, because there's another part of the market I'm trying to understand, but kind of failing to wrap my head around. Hmm. Maybe you can help me with that. What is the difference in some sense between the really large players and the really small players? They seem to be working off the same lists. Mm. They seem to be formulating their pitches roughly the same way. Do the bigger players use pre-existing connections more? Is there really any variance other than more overheads and and staffers doing the work instead of the real agents? How how is that market structured in a sense? Um, Gosh, yes. And is how I'd answer that. It's if you're in a bigger agency, you're going to pay, pay a lot more money. You are going to have more people working on an account. So that might help you get results faster. Um, but I, I, I was talking to, for instance, somebody about brand yesterday. They used to work at McCann Erickson and worked at some big agencies on the advertising side. And they had to go through seven levels of approval for one ad for Coca-Cola. And um, it can be the same thing. But I think also a lot of times if you go to a big agency and spend all this money, you're getting to see the, the heads of the company or the VPs or whatever very few times. And then they punt it down to the interns or the new associates. So you're not really getting, I think you'll get more service, probably paying a little bit less and going with more of an independent or smaller agency. Um, and 100%, I mean, I think it's, you see that, uh, the bigger players, maybe they had the, a connection already. I see that a lot. Yeah. They knew somebody who was here. Now that person's at Good Morning America. And so they're going to be able to use that because they went to college with them or whatever the case may be. Um, also, they might have that hook. They might have gotten that story out early. They might have been first to market. And so it's a lot easier to tell their story and sell it um, to the press. But yeah, it's it, we are. I mean, everybody pretty much uses the same techniques. There's not a lot of variation. We all learn the same things. We read the same materials. Um, we follow the same journalists on Substack for telling us like this is how they want to be pitched. So, I, I mean, and that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out, right? If I use law firms as a parallel, mm-hmm. right? At least with a large law firm, I know that okay, this contract might be easy work, but if we end up going to litigation, I want. Sure the escalation path that the larger law firm might have, yeah. right? But with PR, aren't all the pitches ending up in the same inbox of the same journalist anyway? Yeah. They are. They <laughs> and are. they all look the same? And we bring in, if uh, if I have somebody who might become a client who really has maybe a crisis situation brewing, I'm not going to handle that. I'm going to refer them to somebody else because that's not my right. specialty, right? And so there, uh, people do have specialties. I was talking to somebody yesterday who's a specialist at, for interior designers, right? Who knew? But everybody needs brand. Everybody needs PR. So you can also really niche down. But at the ultimately, we're all looking at the same resources and we're pitching to the same people. So speaking of, you mentioned emergency or crisis. I'm thinking, okay, that's one side of the coin. The other one is these kind of manufactured events around which you can make one big splash. Oh, yeah. How much of that do you see of, like, you, you mentioned one example, right, around COVID, mm-hmm. but that, I guess, was not even one moment that lasted for months. 
Do you see things where people really create like a one-day flash mob or some other crazy event just to then run a PR campaign around that? Yes. There's actually an agency in Montreal that does a lot of that. And um, that's kind of what they're known for is doing really wacky, crazy things that will draw a lot of attention and get a lot of eyeballs. Their campaigns also seem to last past that, though. So they're able to figure out how to capture the attention doing something really crazy or wacky, but then also how to keep the attention afterwards. So I think that's the difference. Doing one thing, great, fine. you know. Um, but I guess another example I would say, though, is there's companies that maybe have, there's one, a company that has a world air quality report. It comes out once a year and it's for every country. And some of the countries give the data, right? So maybe like China will feed the data. So you don't know how um, objective all of the data is that they're getting, but that is a really good example of, the, and this company does like air filtration and things like that, but they've made a big splash because they've also partnered with the UN and with Greenpeace and different big organizations. They do an embargoed press release. And day one, when I worked on the, a campaign for them, we had over 1,200 different media hits. So that's an unusual case, but they've built it up over time. They've created yeah. this buzz around air quality and why it's important. And then it feeds into all these other issues that people talk about with the environment and climate change. Oh, that, that is an interesting case because I can go to opening here right now and not just get real-time data from every station out there in the world, but, yeah. but they actually have an API where I can even embed it in any product I want <laughs> and show what the air quality is wow. in every location. So the fact that somebody can make a big PR splash around just packaging that and I guess posting it less frequently, yeah, <laughs> that's really interesting. Uh, but this is the geek in me talking, right? I think us techies know oh. stuff exists out there because another geek put it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, and not, and not everybody's going to take know how to do that or decide that they're going to do that and just make it available to people, right? right. And that's where you kind of get into what is real news? Is that real news? Well, if people search for it, they could find it, like you're saying. But people don't think about it in that term. And so then that's what makes it become newsworthy. Well, technically, it's data at that point, right? For it to be news, somebody has to report on it. That's the definition, right? And it has to be new, real events that are being reported, right? Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, for that report, they'll talk about what changed in different countries and why did it mm -hmm. change? And are there laws going on in those countries that are affecting this or Mm -hmm. So they try to figure out those angles, but you're right. It's very nuanced, but journalists love data as well. So they'll create a story if you give them the right data and like even just a short little bit of a story. Right. So I want to now try to zoom out and look at this ecosystem, not from us as the players, but mm -hmm. as we're watching this thing unfold. Where is it going? Uh, what are the big trends that you are seeing? And if they happen to be not ideal, what can we do about it? What can we do about it? But go back to the first, when I was first using the internet and I had to go into AOL chat rooms to find people who loved music, to find a street team to promote a dance music magazine, right? That was fresh. It was fun. It was exciting. Now you really can't do anything on social media unless you're going to pay to boost make ads out of your content. Um, algorithms are changing. They're dead. I wish that we could just kind of blow up that whole ecosystem <laughs> and get rid of it. Um, 
you know, uh, but that's not reality. So I don't know. What can we do to change it? People keep trying to come up with new social medias to, but then people try to monetize them immediately and try to turn that quick tips for how you can use this for your business. Well, sometimes we don't want to think about like the early days of MySpace or Friendster or, you know, Facebook or any of the things I look back and I'm like, oh, I just posted, like, I went to lunch with somebody, what my kid was doing, you know, something like so simple and and boring and mundane. I didn't have to think Mm -hmm. about what's going to really make people interested and excited and want to like this post or share it. And that's what it's all about in so many ways now. And so I think a lot of people who are younger or maybe excited because they see the market opportunity, they still think there's a good market opportunity. Some people are trying to game the system. And then some of us are just tired and will post content, but kind of go, oh, okay, I'm not going to boost it. I'm not going to pay a bot to provide likes or comments. And if I don't get any organic traffic anymore, then okay. You know, you don't own the content you put on social anyway. So I think we have to think back about how to personalize things. And that goes back to the personal brand, right? Um, and remembering that the only owned media that you have is your website, your email list, and how you can share that out via newsletters and things in your blogs. So if everything else went away, do you have that secure? Do you have all the other content that you could then pull into your owned media? So that's always what I go back to when I try to remind people of. Um, And I do, it's interesting. I've started doing newsletters again and I find I get much more engagement from people, people I haven't heard from in a a while. Um, People who I might've known it four or five years ago in my life because we were doing a program together and they check in and it's, I get a lot more engagement from that. And it's really fun because it gets me to think about people I haven't thought about or times in my life I haven't thought about and how we make those connections. So I think we really have to go back to authenticity, personalization, and um, creating those touch points that are more authentic. And anything else is just going to keep getting more conflated and confusing and you know, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, that is interesting in itself. I'm hoping it will not just get more conflated and more confusing. I'm hoping at some point, just like with spam, we got spam filters. With viruses, we got antiviruses. So at some point, we're supposed to have our own personalized methods of filtering out stuff we don't like, mm-hmm. whatever that happens to be. But it's curious to me because you're describing an ecosystem that you would want to take back to the days before it got commercialized. Mm -hmm. But PR in itself is like the commercial side (laughs) of publishing news. Right. And so is there a cognitive dissonance that you're experiencing occasionally from, I'm essentially trying to get journalists to write what I want, but I don't want journalists to write what other people want. I just want them to write the news. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent, there's a cognitive dissonance. And I also know that because of things that I post or because people see me posting things or they get my newsletter, that they're more likely to think about me, to hire me to do the work that I do when they need it. Right. Right. So it is a, it is a dichotomy, a push pull, a cognitive dissonance, all of the, you know, 5 million different ways you can slice it. Um, but I think, again, that's where we we think about the messaging. I think part of the issue is that all of the social media platforms are trying to be each other. Mm-hmm. So now you can put your podcasts on TikTok. You can put them 
on you know all these other platforms. YouTube is doing more short form content and trying to get people to upload all their podcasts there um, as video content. Um, we see a lot of video SEO. So everything is becoming everything. And yeah. so you have to figure out like what are the differentiators and how can how can we find those differentiators that actually will be different, but then help us stand out. And that's the issue. And that's the crux of the issue that I don't know how to solve right now. And maybe, maybe you have some ideas that you can share with us. I'm sure you do. Um, you know, and then I'll like Pinterest, you podcast, people are putting podcasts on Pinterest. And that's like something that I'm seeing people are getting, oh, I'm getting more response from this than other social media platforms. So. Yeah, well, they're all trying to do it. I haven't seen anybody do that well. Yeah. Right? Most of these things look kind of the way Google looked when they tried Google Plus. Yeah. Right. It's an attempt. Threads is doing the same thing, right? They right. copy pasted 80% of Twitter's functionality. Right. They got a giant bump initially. Is it going to survive beyond some nominal existence? Is It's still kind of an open question, right? Yeah. Do, um, do you think it's going to be more about um, niching down? So that, you know, because we I know that there's like other platforms that like Truth Social and like other things that people can go on so they can find specifically the people they want. Or um, the same time sure. that Threads came out, uh, Spill also came out, which is catered right. towards people of color. And it's mostly right. memes, right? But it's a place where people can feel safe and they feel like the only people that are going to be there are people that are friendly to them. I mean, I'll use an analogy from about 15 years ago when it was really popular to make dating websites for particular types of people. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, the vast majority of them either failed or stayed small because you're just copying another functionality and your entire innovation is you excluded most of the world out of your <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, it worked for JDate. I'm not sure it can work for anybody else, right? Farmers, isn't there a farmer dating one? They yeah. created a TV show out of it or something. I, I actually have a friend that created several of them oh. and, and did manage to sell them. I'm not, I don't think it was farmers, but yes, he was just picking random categories of people that he thought might feel like they don't belong elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But is it a scalable mod model? Probably not, right? So I don't know. It seems to me like, at least in the platform space, typically the people who win are the ones who actually change something in the underlying functionality, right? TikTok was not a copy of Instagram. Right. In fact, Instagram is trying to copy TikTok, right? Yeah. But it was different, not for the better, but different, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. It was better from their perspective because their goal is to maximize the user's engagement, not to give the user any value in return, right? right? So it was much better at getting more engagement out of you. Did you benefit from it? I don't know. The average person spends, what, 90 minutes now on TikTok? I think if you ask them at the end, do you remember a single thing you've seen in those 90 minutes? The answer will be no. Yeah. Well, and I got an email from TikTok today offering for me to start selling on TikTok and doing lives live product sales. I'm like, well, that's not, I don't have something I would want to do that on. And I honestly don't really go on TikTok. Um, it's, I don't have time. <laughs> and it's just it, one more thing. But I'm like, oh, that reminds me of the old days of Facebook when people would go on Facebook lives and sell in their groups and things like that. So yeah. I'm like, oh, is now TikTok kind of taking stuff from other, that, like old school stuff that people aren't really using those platforms for anymore? Well, th this is just jumping into my own kind of uh, uneducated thoughts on the matter. But I think TikTok figured out how to engage people, that, but they haven't quite figured out how to monetize them. Yeah. 
ads on TikTok don't really convert no. the way that ads on Facebook. Exactly. Do. And so they're trying to find some way to monetize because at some point people will realize that the engagement numbers, the monthly active users numbers, et cetera, that's all fine and dandy. But if ads here don't sell, then how do you monetize? Exactly. Like, why are you worth this much money? Because yeah. they are worth a lot of money, right? That, that's so, one of their problem is, right? They lifted up the creators and, and the creators are making money because people are engaging with what the creators are telling them to buy, but they're not engaging with the ads that are being served at the same time. I don't know if that is true on TikTok either. I think that is true on Instagram, right? But I don't know if the people that are posting similar content on TikTok are actually getting people to pay enough attention to buy what they're talking about in the video. I think they're just scrolling to the next one too fast. There are there are few. TikTok influencers that I've seen in the beauty industry, particularly, that have made products sell out uh, on Amazon for and like keep selling out because they're showing this, you know, demonstration of whatever beauty hack. So I've seen a few things where people are like, oh, I want to try that and go and click through. But you're right, for the most part, I'm not necessarily going to go and buy a pot or a pan or something else because I saw TikTok about it or subscribe to whatever. Or, or it could be that you're right and I'm behind the times and I'm just too old. <laughs> and I think IRC was the best communication channel out there and everything that came afterwards is a cheap ripoff. Right? So, <laughs> it may or may not, may not be true. Let's put it this way. <laughs> um, all right. So I like to end on a hopeful note. Okay. So if everything goes right, if this evolves in the direction you would like it to evolve, yeah. what are we going to see? What's the brightest future we can hope for? Mm. Well, I'm always about connection and collaboration and kindness, which we don't see a lot of necessarily when depending on what platforms you're going into. So I would hope that we would get to a place where people find their ideal people, whether it whether it's a relationship as a friend, a colleague, a collaborator, or a customer, and that instead of being sold to and beaten over the head and all of that, that you're able to create this community for instance, with a safety product that you have a mom community where moms are sharing other safety tips and it grows and becomes something bigger than just one product, right? That would be my ideal. And that's uh, going back to my music roots. I, that's what I always wanted to see. It wasn't just about what DJ and people being on the dance floor. It was about what are we all experiencing together? And so I'd like to get to that point where it's we're creating these experiences and that are really beautiful and organic and evolve naturally. And aren't because we're, and of course, you know, I am to work for marketing agency, but where it's not just about the commercialization and the sales and trying to get people into these funnels. And that's all we see now. And it sounds like you're also talking about creating real connections, which I don't think any of the recent changes in media have led to for the most part. I think even on Instagram, the mode of how many followers a person has is zero. Right. Most people just consume. They don't interact with anybody else. Yeah, it's true. All right. So on that hopeful <laughs> note that we'd like the internet <laughs> to connect people again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation and I hope we can talk again in the future. I would love to. Thank you so much, Alex. This has been another episode of The Adweb. Join us next time for more discussions on news, media, and everything in between.